Welcome to China Insider, a podcast from Hudson Institute's China Center. It's Tuesday, December twelfth, and we have three topics this week. The first is the seventy-fifth anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and Miles' reflections on the legacy of human rights abuses in the People's Republic of China. We then discuss Moody's downgrading of China's sovereign credit rating and what this portends for the Chinese economy. And finally, we discuss the recent local elections in Hong Kong and the state of democracy in Hong Kong today. Miles, how are you? Very good, Shen. Nice to be with you again. Yes,、yeah, great to be back. So, for our first topic, this past Sunday marked the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, originally published in 1948, with over 50 UN member countries contributing to the final draft. As we've spoken about previously on the podcast, Chinese intellectual PC Chang contributed to this draft, and this contribution has served as an inspiration to succeeding generations of Chinese citizens fighting for human rights. In particular, Liu Xiaobo, who、uh, published the Charter Eight. Manifesto on the 60th anniversary, 15 years ago. So, Miles, this offers us an opportunity, I think, to reflect on the legacy of human rights, and in particular that legacy, or perhaps lack thereof, in the People's Republic of China. We've obviously spoken substantially in the past about human rights abuses in China, but we can always use a refresher. So, how should we think about human rights abuses today in China, and what springs to your mind as we reflect on the、uh, 75th anniversary of this declaration? Well, the sharp contrast between China. And the rest of the universal order precisely lies in the、uh, the name of the document that was uh, uh, adopted seventy、uh, five years ago, last Sunday.、Uh, it's called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This is right after World War Two. Countries realize the carnage and、uh, massive human rights abuse uh, occur uh, before the war, during the war. So they come up with this document. There are two words that are very, very important here. Two words. One is universal. Those are universal values, not particular, unique to one particular country. Secondly, is human rights versus state rights. So China basically fare miserably on both accounts. China does not recognize, acknowledge the universality of human rights. Number one.、Uh, number two. China absolutely against、uh, human rights, but stress the. Uh, utmost importance of state rights. Basically, when we say China is a communist country, basically is the、uh, you're talking about the maximization of the state power versus individual rights. So that's why conceptually China is against this. Now, China, of course,、uh, guided by this kind of you know wrong conceptualization, China's human rights、uh, situation has been consistently among the worst. Human rights organizations are many in the world. China consistently ranked at the bottom five. At most, bottom ten. So year after year,、uh, the Freedom House, for example, ranked、uh, China at the bottom. This year, out of a 100 Freedom Index, China got only nine. It's about、uh, <coughs> close to the bottom. Heritage Foundation has、uh, a yearly assessment of economic freedom globally. This year, China's economic freedom ranks at 154th. So that's pretty bottom. When it comes to press freedom, China is even worse.、Uh, Reporters Without Borders issued annual、uh, report about free press freedom worldwide. This past year, China ranked the second worst from the bottom. It was nearly tied with North Korea. So this is really really bad.、Uh, not only this, China constantly colluded with all the human rights abusers worldwide, particularly with countries like、uh, 
uh, North Korea, Iran, and Syria. And they also, those countries do things together to have some kind of a human rights violations international, if you will. For example, uh, in, the, in the month of October and November 2023, China has rounded up 600 North Korean escapees. Most of them were women. And China shipped them back to North Korea to face cruel punishment, many to certain deaths. So you're talking about this is a, a regime that is a, not only uh, doing bad things, but doing bad things together with other bad guys. In addition to this Universal Declaration of Human Rights, there's also another very fundamental document in the uh, United Nations, that is the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights, ICCPR. China, up to this day, has refused to ratify that document. As a matter of fact, of the five permanent member, members of the UN Security Council, China is the only one that has not ratified the ICCPR. So you can see China acted like a rogue uh, uh, in the international human rights arena. So we've seen in the past uh, Chinese dissidents or citizens pushing back against the regime and, and sort of drawing from this document. How, what is that legacy like today? I mean, 15 years ago, we had the Charter 8 Manifesto. Is this a significant date for people in China, for, for, for those who are dissatisfied with the government? No, I mean, you cannot even bring up this date. I mean, <laughs> in China, obviously, uh, this is the International Human Rights Day, uh, mm-hmm. uh, December 10th. Uh, it's international, it's human rights, and, every, and, and it's right. Uh, every element in that uh, uh, holiday uh, uh, commemoration is uh, antithetical to the, to the organization. I may want you to just mention another thing. There's a, you know, um, uh, China obviously is the, the most egregious human rights violator in the world, not just because it's bad, but also because of the size, the scale. China is mm-hmm. a very huge country. So China's bad human rights violations would affect a much, much uh, bigger portion of humanity. There are a lot of international uh, uh, non-government organizations dedicated to human rights improvement in China. Uh, human Rights Watch, for example, Human Rights in China based in New York, Amnesty International is another one. Most of them are dedicated to documenting CCP's rights abuse, and they're focused on cases, and, uh, and rescue and assistance to the victims of human rights abuses. Very few of them are actually dedicated to eradicating the sources of those rights abuse, except that perhaps you know, uh, the Washington-based victims of communism foundation. So while my view is that while we should absolutely continue to work on cases, we also need to focus on the sources and fundamentals of PRC mm-hmm. rights abuse. Uh, it's a very systemic, it's ideologically driven, it's institutionalized. Uh, that dis- distinguishes China from many other uh, bad guys. For example, there's a prevailing system of labor reform camps in China. It's based on Marx's theory about human nature. Marx believed bad guys, the bourgeoisie, uh, bad social classes, they're bad because they don't work hard enough. They don't involve in labor. They were basically exploiters of other people's labor. So that's why the best way to change human nature, to make somebody a good person, you have to be reformed through hard work and labor. That's the theory of the labor camp system, which is pervasive. Tens of millions of people went through that. Another thing we talk about the you know the the, the torture and torment uh, experienced by the Uyghurs, it's not just a physical torture and violation of the human rights of these Uyghurs. To the core, it's really about Chinese Communist Party's war against any organized religion. 
particularly Muslim Christianity, those things. We have to go through the fundamentals. Guided by those fundamentals are the Chinese institutions. China's criminal codes, for example, uh, it would uh, uh, run the chill through the spine if you read that carefully. It's very blatant. All democracies in a democracy uh, in a dictatorship that began to change or uh, become democracy, they start with with some something like a criminal code. For example, Taiwan. Uh, Taiwanese democracy started in the uh, mid uh, to late 1980s. All those champions of freedom and democracy uh, are led by a bunch of lawyers. They tackle the article. Hundred of the ROC criminal codes at the time, uh, so and because according to that article, uh, even if you have the thought of disagreement with government, and you'll be uh, uh, criminally charged. So this is kind of a very important things. Having said that, unlike most other human rights abusers uh, like North Korea, Iran, and Syria, China is also different because China also actually gave the world a lot of opportunities to improve China's human rights because China is the only major totalitarian country that has simultaneously maintained massive comprehensive economic engagement with the West, particularly with the, with the uh, United States. That's opportunity. And through academic economic engagement, we definitely have to tie the economic engagement uh, with China with the human rights conditions. Unfortunately, uh, tragically, we squandered that opportunity to improve China's human rights because in the early 19, uh, 2000, the United States government, championed, pushed by President Bill Clinton, completely delinked our economic engagement, trade uh, with, uh, with, uh, and the human rights condition. This is through the notorious HR 4444, also known as the China Trade Bill, which basically provides uh, normalization of trade relationship with China, delinking trade and human rights. So American companies since then uh, have been traded with, with and invested in China unconditionally, which has allowed the CCP to enrich itself, utilize American technological know-how to build the most draconian state in modern history. Uh, for example, uh, the company uh, Cisco played a very important role in providing the CCP surveillance technologies that form the basis for today's uh, PRC high-tech surveillance system. Apple, Walmart, a lot of companies uh, 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 run sweatshops all over China. Uh, most of these companies could not have gotten away with labor laws, environmental laws in the United States. So that's an opportunity we squander. So uh, then, of course, the next question is, uh, what is to be done? So I would have basically you know, a few recommendations. Number one, we absolutely have to make human rights a condition for America's economic and trade engagement with China. We should do what the 1992 Hong Kong Policy Act uh, does because that 1992 Hong Kong Policy Act demanded yearly reassessment of China's promise of high degree of autonomy in Hong Kong. The moment that autonomy, China's promise is broken and uh, we uh, cease to treat Hong Kong uh, separately from China. So that's exactly what happened. Uh, during the Trump administration, when uh, Secretary Pompeo uh, certified Hong Kong's uh, autonomy is gone, and then that triggered all bunch of policy responses as well. So my first recommendation is that uh, all American companies must certify that their business operations in China will not violate human rights. Uh, otherwise, they could be liable for civil lawsuits and punishment by the government.
we have anti-bribery law in place right now. In other words, American companies were not supposed to be engaged in bribery in foreign oper uh, operations. Uh, but that's the, just very tiny. Uh, it's, it's not, we should have a sweeping human rights law in this regard. Second recommendation I would say is, in the same vein, we demand all Chinese business in the U.S. to certify that their operations in the U.S. will not violate human rights and American law, uh, or they should be uh, expelled. The last one I might say in this regard is that uh, we sh really should basically weaponize the Congressional Executive Committee on China. That was the committee created by this dreadful uh, China trade bill as some kind of window dressing because there, there, there's no certifying power. In other words, unlike the Hong Kong Policy uh, Act of 1992, the CECC has done incredible work but just to expose China's uh, violation of human rights. But they don't have a power to certify, uh, uh, act as a trigger to turn off economic engagement with China uh, on human rights condition, uh, uh, ground. So um, uh, I think that the CECC should not just be the window dressing and uh, should be a really uh, uh, have some kind of real teeth. Well, those are some great recommendations. And I mean, this economic angle dovetails quite nicely in our next topic. That is, the ratings agency Moody has downgraded China's sovereign credit rating from stable to negative, uh, citing things we've spoken quite a bit about, uh, such as the country's crippling debts, particularly within local governments, as well as the current property crises they're uh, undergoing. So, Miles, could you walk the audience through this a little bit? Uh, why is this particularly important, and what consequences are we seeing, or do you intend, uh, or do you think we'll see as a result of this change in the rating? Well, Moody's downgrading of China's sovereign credit uh, from uh, stable to negative is very important. Not only this is unprecedented, but also because it marks the end of the era of illusion and self-kidding. Because in the past, Western uh, credit rating uh, companies more or less had to rely on Chinese statistics to make economic, trade, and investment decisions. And those uh, credit rating uh, ratings so were decision were uh, from the basis for Western companies in involvement in China, which is pretty funny because uh, Chinese statistics are also uh, are always really known to be to be uh, unfaithful. Moody's rating this time also marks the beginning of a new era of realistic assessment of China's economic reality. The reason is very simple because PRC had cut off all data sharing, uh, uh, all economic data sharing with uh, Western companies. So Moody and Goldman Sachs companies like that would have to really come up with their real thing, uh, real data, their real research, rather than rely on China because China is not cooperating. So they, they don't have Chinese government to blame if something goes wrong. Just things always go wrong. So uh, uh, otherwise, they're not doing their fiduciary duty and, and uh, legal and financial liabilities will be very, very huge. So that's why they're doing this. But I'm very glad doing this. And Moody's also did this. Uh, it takes a lot of courage because uh, they, were, uh, they anticipated the retribution. And so Moody actually warned its staffers inside China to stay at home before the report came out to avoid the physical harassment from the Chinese agents and Chinese police and the mobs. Uh, CCP predictably launched a propaganda smear campaign against the Moody's. The Moody's uh, cr uh, downgrading of China's sovereign uh, credit it's not just about uh, uh, that, it's uh, far more. Because in the meantime, in the same report, Moody's had also downgraded Macau and Hong Kong to negative uh, uh, regime. And I also specifically mentioned, n named each one of the 22 uh, 
local government financing vehicles, and eight of the largest state-owned banks, ten largest insurance companies in China, and eighteen largest Chinese companies. Most of them were,、uh, were state-owned. Companies like Alibaba, Tencent, China Mobile, and Sanopec, etc., etc. So this is a massive、uh, downgrading. So the Chinese entire economic system has been downgraded to a negative in in essence.、Uh, this also, this Moody's forecast is becoming more believable because it is perfectly in line with the massive capital flight from China in recent months. By end of October, for example,、uh, it's been reported that over one hundred billion dollars、uh, of U.S. capital has left China. Even big firms like Tesla is having second thought because、uh, Elon Musk just announced that he's going to build another gigantic Tesla、uh, factory、uh, in Southeast Asia, five billion dollars in Thailand.、Uh, so that's 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 sort of a, some kind of Plan B. Not only this, in China, people with the with the money they were fleeing、uh, in droves, uh, and uh, uh, we I've seen a report、uh, in last year. Seven hundred super rich Chinese families have moved their family fortunes to Singapore. In 2020 alone, over 10,000 Chinese super rich families left China, taking with them something around 350 billion yuan. That's equivalent to about 50 billion Chinese U.S. dollars. That's a lot of capital flight. So you can see the Moody's rating is resonating globally because the Chinese economy. Uh, has been built upon a lot of like a mirage, a lot of very fake data. So now、uh, it's for real. For our last topic, we turn to Hong Kong, who has just this past weekend held district council elections. Despite the significant get-out-the-vote effort from the government, what we've seen is an electorate which is increasingly politically disengaged. Obviously, there's reason for Hong Kongers, in particular pro-democracy Hong Kongers, to be pessimistic, given the abuses to their freedoms since 2019. But in particular, there's been quite a bit of criticism of what the Hong Kong government is calling the patriots-only system,、uh, which carefully vets those allowed to run in the first place. Miles, could you tell us a bit about this patriots-only system and the state of democracy in Hong Kong today? Yeah, let me just dial back a little bit. I mean, this uh, district council uh, election uh, uh, took place、uh, this past Sunday is a farce. It's actually a mockery of uh, uh, of the democratic process.、Uh, this is how it works.、Uh, so the the district councils were not legislators; they were just a consultative body providing advice on administrative and governance issues. But it excited Hong Kong people because it was once the only direct elections of any kind in Hong Kong. Before 2019, 95% of them were directly elected by voters. That's why people are excited about this. So the 2019 election, however, shocked the CCP in Beijing because the pro-democracy candidates won overwhelmingly. They won 81% of all positions in the district council、uh, race. The pro-Beijing candidates suffer a near blowout defeat. And this was against. It was against this background the Chinese Communist Party、uh, in Beijing enacted the notorious national security law for Hong Kong, just before the upcoming much more important legislative council election. So the national security law for Hong Kong was uh, was uh, was passed in by the end of uh, uh, June, twenty twenty, and、uh, it arbitrarily reduced the directly elected council members. From 95% to 20%. In other words, even if the pro-democracy groups won all of the 20% seats, it will only make up 20% of the whole body. So rather than 85% seats they had just won the year before, 
In fact, because of the national security law, not one single pro-democracy uh, uh, campus candidate became even eligible, qualified to run in 2020. So by the end of 2020, Hong Kong had become a pure fascist regime, just like communist China. This brings up to the last Sunday's uh, election, so-called election. This year, the election uh, is nothing but a shame. All candidates must be patriotic. They have been approved by pro-Beijing authorities. Uh, there is a, not a single one candidate who belongs to the pro-democracy camp in this race that had just won in 22, uh, three years, uh, uh, four years ago, won 81% of the race. So what happened to the pro-democracy winners of the 2019 uh, direct elections? Well, many of them were in jail now. This is the reality of Hong Kong. It's, it's basically just like China. Uh, uh, there's no difference uh, uh, anyway. Uh, and there's, uh, by the way, there's another legal drama, which is kind of uh, was triggered by a rather insignificant, uh, that is the, uh, the saga of the activist uh, uh, Agnes Chow. Uh, I met her once. She's a brave young soul. She was a leader of the uh, 2020 uh, street uh, protest against uh, Hong Kong's proposed extradition law. What happened to her was that she was charged for illegally organizing a protest. She went to the court hearing, and she was granted a parole uh, and bailed out. And then she uh, went to Canada to go to school and waiting for her court date. And then suddenly, before the court date approached, she decided that a couple of weeks ago that she's not going to go show up in this, uh, in this kangaroo court for, for her trial because she didn't commit any crime. This little act of defiance enraged the CCP. And the Hong Kong chief executive, Zhang Li, uh, made some dramatic statements uh, to the world, uh, vowed to catch her back to Hong Kong, wherever she might be. That's basically part of the national security law for Hong Kong says, because that law's jurisdiction covers the entire world. If anybody violated that clause, the Hong Kong government, uh, the Chinese government had the authority, has the authority to, to implement that law worldwide. So that's what is really, really, uh, really uh, interesting. But the CCP underestimates the young lady. It turned out that she had uh, learned flawless Japanese uh, during his year of exile, uh, went on Japanese TV and absolutely charmed the whole nation of Japan with her eloquence, grace, and the will of steel. So it's quite remarkable. So I see that uh, uh, the, the forces of, uh, of uh, tyranny and freedom uh, is manifested in, uh, in Hong Kong, uh, around Hong Kong issue on a daily basis. With the government being so keen on, on getting the vote out and things like that, I, I was reminded of the recent report from uh, Benedict Rogers and Hong Kong Watch that we did an event on at Hudson, Sell Out My Soul, where he, he sort of argued that the, the aim of the government is to sort of slowly and insidiously suppress freedoms while maintaining the appearance of democracy and, and, and religious liberty and these things. Do you think that's what's at play here? I mean, I guess I'm asking, what is the end game of the CCP and, and those running the Hong Kong government um, in terms of suppressing freedom? Is there a real desire on their part to sort of maintain a picture that Hong Kong is still democratic? Well, Hong Kong is used to be the uh, the a financial center uh, of the world. Uh, that financial center needs some kind of a facade of a free flow of information, some kind of democratic uh, uh, window dressing, and that's precisely that. I mean, nobody believes that anymore. I think that's why Hong Kong is uh, uh, fast going downhill uh, to uh, irrelevance, even oblivion, if you will. What uh, that Hong Kong panel we, we, we held a couple of weeks ago. 
uh, it was not uh, did not say that uh, uh, there was the veneer of electional democracy. That's all gone. China doesn't need that. Hong Kong doesn't need that anymore. There was, however, some degree of freedom of worshiping remaining in Hong Kong. Uh, that's just a matter of time because uh, there are a lot of Catholics over there. They're well organized. They were connected to, 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 uh, to the world. And also, I think China also has played the game because China is, uh, uh, has been in an intense negotiation process with the Vatican with the Pope. Mm -hmm. So I think that they want to have the good grace of the, ho of the Pope to, uh, uh, to give up Catholic authorities' uh, uh, rights to appoint bishops. Uh, so China, I think, it has, uh, I think China is playing a larger game. That's why they, even freedom of religion in, in Hong Kong is pretty frimsy. Well, Miles, I think that's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for joining me again, and I look forward to doing it again next week. Okay, thank you very much, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of China Insider. For Chinese language listeners, be sure to check out our monthly Chinese language episodes. And for those who prefer written analysis, subscribe to our weekly newsletter, China Digest, the best place to stay up to date on Miles' analysis and the latest news on China. As always, you can stay up to date on the China Center's activities at Hudson.org.